Hello. Thank you all for coming out. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here at Skylight Books. Um, I lived, uh, when I lived here in LA a couple years back, not too far down the road, and down Sunset, a few miles. So this was my favorite bookstore in LA, and it's just such a thrill to be here to read tonight. Um, so thank you, Skylight. And thank you, all of you, for coming out. Um, it's great to see some familiar faces. I see my nephew. <laughs> And also um, some f friends and colleagues from USC, and also some unfamiliar faces, which is good too. Um, so I am going to read a little bit from my, my first novel, um, History of Wolves. Um, I thought I would read a few pieces um, from near the beginning of the book uh, to give you a taste for f sort of the, how it begins and, and um, how it unfolds. This book is... I hope about, I'll move this over a little bit, um, I hope about a lot of things potentially, um, but at least one of those things is um, the feeling of looking back um, on a life and trying to make sense of events um, after they've occurred and, and sort of thinking through how retrospect sort of changes how we see things. So I think the first part of the book gives a taste for that. So here's the opening. It's not that I never think about Paul. He comes to me occasionally before I'm fully awake, though I almost never remember what he said or what I did or didn't do to him. In my mind, the kid just plops down into my lap. Boom. That's how I know it's him. There's no interest in me, no hesitation. We're sitting in the nature center on a late afternoon like any other, and his body moves automatically toward mine, not out of love or respect, but simply because he hasn't yet learned the etiquette of minding where his body stops and another begins. He's four. He's got an owl puzzle to do. Don't talk to him. I don't. Outside the window, an avalanche of poplar fluff floats by, silent and weightless as air. The sunlight shifts, the puzzle cleaves into an owl and comes apart again. I prod Paul to standing. Time to go. It's time. But in the second before we rise, before he winds out his protest and asks to stay a little longer, he leans back against my chest, yawning, and my throat cinches closed. Because it's strange, you know, it's marvelous and sad, too, how good it can feel to have your body taken for granted. Before Paul, I'd known just one person who'd gone from living to dead. He was Mr. Adler, my eighth grade history teacher. He wore brown corduroy suits and white tennis shoes, and though his subject was America, he preferred to talk about czars. He once showed us a photograph of Russia's last emperor, and that's how I think of him now, black-bearded, tassel-shouldered, though in fact Mr. Adler was always clean-shaven and plodding. I was in English class when his fourth-period student burst in, saying Mr. Adler had fallen. We crowded across the hall, and there he lay face down on the floor, eyes closed, blue lips suctioning the carpet. Does he have epilepsy? Someone asked. Does he have pills? We were all repulsed. 
The Boy Scouts argued over proper CPR techniques, while the gifted and talented kids reviewed his symptoms in hysterical whispers. I had to force myself to go to him. I crouched down and took Mr. Adler's dry meat hand. It was early November. He was darkening the carpet with drool, gasping in airs between longer and longer intervals, and I remember a distant bonfire scent. Someone was burning garbage in plastic bags, some janitor getting rid of leaves and pumpkin rinds before the first big snow. When the paramedics finally loaded Mr. Adler's body onto a stretcher, the Boy Scouts trailed behind like puppies, hoping for an assignment. They wanted a door to open, something heavy to lift. In the hallway, girls stood sniffling in clumps. A few teachers held their palms to their chests, uncertain what to say or do next. That a door song? One of the paramedics asked. He'd stayed behind to pass out packets of saltines to lightheaded students. I shrugged. I must have been humming out loud. He gave me orange Gatorade in a Dixie cup, saying, as if I were the one he'd come to save, as if his duty were to root out sickness in whatever living thing he could find. Drink slow now. Do it in sips. The walleye capital of the world, we were called back then. There was a sign to this effect out on Route 10 and a mural of three mohawked fish on the side of the diner. Those guys were always waving a finny hello, grins and eyebrows, teeth and gums. But no one came from out of town to fish or do much at all once the big lakes froze up in November. We didn't have the resort in those days, only a seedy motel. Downtown went... Diner, hardware, bait and tackle, bank. The most impressive place in Loose River back then was the old timber mill, I think, and that was because it was half burned down, charred black planks towering over the banks of the river. Almost everything official, the hospital and DMV and Burger King and police station were 20 plus miles down the road in Whitewood. The day the Whitewood paramedics took Mr. Adler away, they tooted the ambulance horn as they left the school parking lot. We all stood at the windows and watched, even the hockey players in their yellowed caps, even the cheerleaders with their static charged bangs. Snow was coming down by then, hard. As the ambulance slid around the corner, its headlights raked crazily through the flurries gusting across the road. Shouldn't there be sirens? Someone asked. And I thought, measuring the last swallow of Gatorade in my little waxed cup, how stupid can people be? So as you can tell, um, this is a book that's set in northern Minnesota um, in a little invented town called Loose River in the North Woods. Um, but it was actually born here in L.A., uh, not so far from here. Um, I was living in L.A., um, going to school at USC, and, um, and fell in love with L.A. Actually, I really loved living here, but found myself missing winter, of all things, um, or at least winter as I knew it. Um, there is winter here, but winter as I knew it and snow and ice, and so um, I, you know, you can think of me sitting 
uh, on a beautiful campus with birds singing and you know babbling fountains and um, and and dreaming up snow and ice um, and winter. Uh, this is a story that actually moves through the seasons, moves into spring and summer, um, but. Uh, some of the iciness and cold of this first chapter, I think, permeates the rest of the book. Um, and and really, it sort of infuses the voice of this book. Um, it's told from the perspective of an adult woman looking back on her life. Um, uh, uh, Madeline, also known as Linda or Maddie, uh, was born into a back-to-the-land style commune that broke up when she was really young um, in the north woods of Minnesota. And uh, so she's uh, living on this, um, on the, uh, the remnants of this commune, in the remnants of this commune, on the edge of this little lake, on the edge of this little town, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the north woods. And her life, her very isolated and sequestered life is punctured by a couple of events that happened when she was 14 and 15 years old. Um, the first of which is the new teacher who comes into town um, after Mr. Adler dies. And so I thought I might read just a tiny bit from that section of the book to give you a feel for it. Mr. Adler's replacement was Mr. Grierson, and he arrived a month before Christmas with a deep, otherworldly tan. (laughs) He wore one gold hoop earring and a brilliant white shirt with pearly buttons. We learned later that he'd come from California, from a private girls' school on the sea. No one knew what brought him all the way to northern Minnesota midwinter, but after the first week of class, he took down Mr. Adler's maps of the Russian Empire and replaced them with enlarged copies of the U.S. Constitution. He announced he double-majored in theater in college, which explained why he stood in front of the class one day with his arms outstretched, reciting the whole Declaration of Independence by heart. Not just the soaring parts about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but the needling, wretched list of tyrannies against the colonies. I could see how badly he wanted to be liked. What does it mean, Mr. Grierson asked, when he got to the part about mutually pledging our sacred honor? The hockey players slept innocently on folded hands. Even the gifted and talented kids were unmoved, clicking their mechanical pencils until the lead protruded obscenely like hospital needles. They jousted each other across the aisles. On guard, they hissed contemptuously. Mr. Grierson sat down on Mr. Adler's desk. He was breathless from his recitation, and I realized, in an odd flash, like a too bright light passing over him, he was middle-aged. I could see sweat on his face, his pulse pounding under gray neck stubble. People, guys, what does it mean that the rights of man are self-evident? Come on, you know this. I saw his eyes rest on Lily Holborn, who had sleek black hair and was wearing, despite the cold, a sheer crimson sweater. He seemed to think her beauty could rescue him, that she would be, because she was prettier than the rest of us, kind. Lily had brown eyes, dyslexia, no 
pencil, a boyfriend. Her face was slowly reddening under Mr. Grierson's gaze. She blinked. He nodded at her, promising implicitly that whatever she said, he'd agree. She gave a deer-like lick of her lips. I don't know why I raised my hand. It wasn't that I felt sorry for her, exactly, or him. It was just that the tension became unbearable for a moment, out of all proportion to the occasion. It means some things don't have to be proven, I offered. Some things are simply true. There's no changing them. That's right, he said, grateful, I knew, not to me in particular, but to some hoop of luck he'd felt he'd stumbled into. I could do that, give people what they wanted without them knowing it came from me. Without saying a word, Lily could make people feel encouraged, blessed. She had dimples on her cheeks, nipples that flashed like signs from God through her sweater. I was flat-chested, plain as a banister. I made people feel judged. (laughs) Winter collapsed on us that year. It knelt down exhausted and stayed. In the middle of December, so much snow fell, the gym roof buckled and school was canceled for a week. With school out, the hockey players went ice fishing. The Boy Scouts played hockey on the ponds. Then came Christmas with its strings of colored lights up and down Main Street and the competing nativity scenes at the Lutheran and Catholic churches, one with painted sandbags standing in as sheep and the other with baby Jesus sculpted out of a lump of ice. (laughs) New Year's brought another serious storm. By the time school started again in January, Mr. Grierson's crisp white sweaters I'm sorry, shirts had been, had been replaced with nondescript sweaters, his hoop earring with a stud. Someone must have taught him to use the Scantron machine because after a week's work worth of lectures on Lewis and Clark, he gave his first test. While we hunched at our desks, filling tiny circles, he walked up and down the aisles, clicking a ballpoint pen. The next day, Mr. Grierson asked me to stay after class. He sat behind his desk and touched his lips, which were chapped and flaking off beneath his fingers. You didn't do very well on your exam, he told me. He was waiting for an explanation, and I lifted my shoulders defensively. But before I could say a word, he added, Look, I'm sorry. He twisted the stud, delicate, difficult screw, in his ear. I'm still working out the kinks in my lesson plans. What were you studying before I arrived? Russia? (laughs) Ah, a look of scorn passed over his face, followed immediately by pleasure. The Cold War lingers in the back country. (laughs) I defended Mr. Adler. It wasn't the Soviet Union we were talking about. It was czars. Oh, Maddie. No one ever called me that. It was like being tapped on the shoulder from behind. My name was Madeline, but at school I was called Linda or Kami or Freak. I pulled my hands into balls in my sleeves. Mr. Grierson went on. No one cared about the czars before Stalin and the bomb. They were puppets on a faraway stage, utterly insignificant. Then all the Mr. Adlers went to college in 1961, and there was general nostalgia for the old Russian toys, the inbred princesses from another century. Their ineffectuality made them interesting. You understand? He smiled then, closing his eyes a little. His front teeth were white, his canines yellow. But you're 13, 14. 
I just wanted to say, I'm sorry if this has started off badly. We'll get on better footing soon. The next week, he asked me to drop by his classroom after school. This time, he'd taken the stud out of his ear and set it on his desk. Very tenderly, with his forefinger and thumb, he was probing the flesh around his earlobe. Maddie, he said, straightening up. He had me sit in a blue plastic chair beside his desk. He set a stack of glossy brochures in my lap, made a teepee of his fingers. Do me a favor, but don't blame me for having to ask. That's my job. He squirmed. That's when he asked me to be the school's representative in History Odyssey. This will be great, he said, unconvincingly. What you do is make a poster, then you give a speech about the Vietnam War registers, border crossings to Canada, etc. Or maybe you do the desecration of the Ojibwe peoples, or those back-to-the-land folks that settled up here. Something local, something ethically ambiguous, something with constitutional implications. I want to do wolves, I told him. What? A history of wolves? He was puzzled. Then he shook his head and grinned. Right. You're a 14-year-old girl. The skin bunched up around his eyes. You all have a thing for horses and wolves. I love that. I love that. That's so weird. What is that about? So, um, obviously the title of this book is History of Wolves. And I promised West, my nephew, I'd ask, are there wolves in this book, West? No, No, there aren't. If you're here to read about wolves, this is maybe not the book for you. There is a kind of um, wonderful, beautiful wolf on the inside cover if you're looking for a wolf. and, and there is actually a taxidermy wolf, I should say, um, that is very important to Linda. But um, but there aren't there aren't wolves. The second question I'm often asked about this book is, um, what do the wolves mean? Um, what do they represent? And um, I think there could be a lot of answers to that question. There may be a lot of wolves of a kind in this book. Um, but I always point back to this first chapter when I'm asked that. Um, There's something about Linda's response to her teacher and to the History Odyssey judges, her sort of stubborn response. That's important, I think. Um, She later goes up to give her speech, and she quotes from Barry Lopez, who, in fact, writes a real history of wolves. Has anyone here read Barry Lopez's work? He's a great writer. Yeah, so if you want a real history of wolves, go to Barry Lopez. Um, But Linda quotes from him. I'm essentially saying... um, uh, an alpha animal may be alpha only in certain times for a specific reason. Uh, the idea being that power might not be fixed and that it might um, might be shifting and context-based, uh, which is an idea that's especially compelling to a, a 14-year-old girl who's been overlooked in a lot of parts of her life. And uh, I think that idea of shifting context for power um, is something that that you might see in the rest of the book, potentially. Um, So I I wrote this first chapter as a short story, actually, and I thought I was done, and I put it away. Um, I actually have someone here who read that story (laughs) in the first workshop um, and gave great advice. Um, And... uh, 
when I thought about writing a longer project, this voice came back to me. Um, it is weird enough and difficult enough and strange enough and um, canny enough and also innocent enough to be interesting to me and seemed like a voice I could play with and, and live with um, for the long period of time it takes to write even a short novel like this one. Um, so, so after that first story, I had this voice and I had this place um, too, this um, really vivid setting. Um, and I also had some of the uh, initial questions that I wanted to think through. Um, I was, I don't think it's revealing too much to say that Mr. Grierson has a secret himself. Um, and um, I will... I wanted to think through the relationship of thought to action and witness to responsibility, and especially to ask the question, um, what should we be held responsible for in our lives, and what are we held responsible for? And so I decided to ask that question that I sort of pose with Mr. Grierson in an entirely different context and, and bring in this family, the Gardner family. Um, who move in across the lake from, from Linda. Um, the father's away at work. Um, the mother is young, Patra, and they have a little boy named Paul um, a, a, that Linda becomes a babysitter for. And increasingly, she insinuates herself into this family that's living across the lake. So I thought I could read just a little bit from that section. So this is a night um, when Linda's over at the gardener's house and um, the father's gone and, and uh, Patra's sort of putting off, putting Paul to bed. There was one night in particular. Paul was whiny and Patra was casting about for something other than trains and bath time to talk about. I remember how she pushed back her bowl, set her chin in her palm, and pointed herself at me. Okay, Linda, she said. There was something unsettled about her that night, a frenzy of tiny movements in the skin around her eyes. Tell me, you're one of those girls who wants to raise horses or something, be a vet when she grows up. I can tell. I'm right, aren't I? That's what you want to be. I wasn't one of those girls, actually. I didn't think much about the future, but when I did, all I could come up with was the weird image of a semi-truck, white and floating down the highway. Of course, I couldn't say that. I couldn't say truck driver. So to stall, I looked across the table at Paul, who was inching from his chair to the floor, singing, I want to be a physicist. I want to be a physicist. Patra was just teasing, though. I could tell. She really didn't care what I said, as long as I played along. She wanted something to do before clearing the table, before coaxing Paul toward bed, a distraction before the husband called. I could be a vet, I said, offering myself up. Sure. Or no, Petra pulled one bent leg under her. I've got something better for you. I'm good at this kind of thing. Let's see, you, Linda, you deserve something you haven't seen. A city to explore, you know? A bunch of people trying to get in your doors. You should be... She snapped her fingers, flashing a grin. A hotelier, a restauranter. She looked so pleased. A restauranter? Paul asked. I grunted to keep from smiling. Like a waitress? I did that already. 
I swept my hand across the room like, what's all this then? I quit for you. She widened her eyes, feigned shock. You left the restaurant business to be a babysitter? That's a whole lot of pressure for us here, isn't it, Paul? We should give you a better title then. Where did the word babysitter come from anyway? I shrugged. An ugly word, right? Should we call you nanny instead? No, no, that sounds like an old lady. What about governess? Ooh, let's call you governess. She was laughing now. That's so much better. A babysitter would never be hired for Flora and Miles. You've read The Turn of the Screw. Or a babysitter wouldn't fall in love with Mr. Rochester, right? And be the heroine. Governess you are. Governess, Paul shouted from under the table. He waited for Patra to define it, and when she didn't, he pulled a fist of pebbles from his dash in the glove and threw them. Watch it, I told him. To Patra, I don't know, I'm not sure. Sounds like kind of a sissy thing to be. Plus, people will think you're like millionaires or something. I was trying to keep from grinning at her. You're right, Patra pouted. Time for my bath, Paul pouted too. He crawled from the floor onto her lap. Patra let him nestle into her chest while she stroked his hair. She patted his cheek, but her eyes were on me. You're right, Linda, you're right. People here already think I'm a snob or something, an anomaly. She furrowed her brow, following a new train of thought. I'm still figuring this place out. What's what? It's funny, I've been to the diner with Paul four, maybe five times for lunch. I see the same people every time I go in, and they all look at me. They all smile and say hi, but no one has asked me one thing about myself. Not my name, not a thing. People are nice in a way, but also not, I said. She pulled Paul's hand away from the buttons on her shirt, so he took up her hair instead, winding his fingers in her blonde curls. Was it a good idea to come here? She asked me now. The idea was that while Leo was in Hawaii this spring, we'd come out to the new summer house, go somewhere quiet and nice, just me and Paul, as a kind of hideout... A hideout from what? She spun her free hand in a general way. You on the run, I teased. You rob a bank over there in Illinois? Ha ha ha, she said. Paul was yanking on her hair, not hard, but slowly and repeatedly. If so, no one cares too much what you do here, so long as you keep to yourself, I joked, and don't, like, take all the good fishing spots. Hmm. I winced at how lame a line it was. But that didn't keep me from trying again. And as long as you're not something really unforgivable, like divorced or an atheist or something, gentle hun, Patra was prying Paul's fingers out of her hair. Or, or, Paul, stop. She scooted him at last off her lap, patting his rump to offset the burst of irritation in her voice. Go get your puzzle, bucko. Let's do the owl puzzle, how about... When he left, she started stacking plates and bowls, making noise, moving quickly. Then she sat down again, suddenly. I really don't know if it's a great thing for us, all this quiet. Why did I think it would be a good thing for us? Maybe it would be better for Paul to go back to preschool, to be around people who... Maybe it wasn't such a good idea to come here in the first place. She looked up at me then, and there was something I didn't expect in her eyes. It's still a pretty good idea, I said, unsettled by her guilty expression. 
Uh, so just before I, I was expanding this book into a novel, I was reading a lot of gothic novels. Um, and especially I was interested in the kind of old great governess stories, like The Turn of the Screw and um, Jane Eyre, uh, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. And I was thinking a lot about the strange role that the governess plays, right? That kind of peripheral yet central role. Um, and the way that the governess is, of course, um, a, a, a girl, a woman, um, often younger and often of a different class um, than, than her employers. And the way she's often invited in and has a kind of privileged access to a family life, but also um, also is sort of held uh, away from or apart from the, the secrets of the family. And it just seemed like an interesting role to, to put Linda in. Um, and of course, you know, the contemporary equivalent of the governess is the babysitter. So I, um, so I made Linda the babysitter. And... Um, and she has this way of, um, because of her youth and because of her inexperience and her incredible isolation, um, she doesn't really see what's going on. Something's not right in this family, in the gardener's family. There's something not, um, not quite right with them. But at the same time, um, she's very canny, and she, she does begin to see something. And so I was, I was playing with the idea of um, being able to see and not see, or know and not know at, at the same time, sort of simultaneously. Um, something very bad happens. Um, I won't say what, um, although it is revealed early on in the book. Um, and Linda spends a lot of her life um, afterward um, trying to figure out how to deal with with her own responsibility in the trauma and the traumatic events that occurred. And, um, and, and the book sort of asks at some point, um, you know, when, when does our innocence, our ignorance transform into self-deception um, and um, sort of intentional blindness, refusing to see? But that all happens later in the book. Um, and I, I think I, wanted, I would like to finish on a little a piece of uh, writing about the Minnesota woods. Um, I was here in LA today and had a kind of perfect, gorgeous LA day um, with sun and um, and everything was sort of shining and beautiful. Um, but it, I thought it might be nice to take you all to uh, the Minnesota woods as a finishing point. Once, as I was helping Paul slide off a boulder, we came upon a mallard nest so far from shore that the ducklings could do nothing but waddle in yellow panicked circles to get away. Paul reached down to touch one. The brown mother winged a few feet back, then waited empty-eyed for the disaster to play itself out. Her feathers gleamed with a faint hint of purple, unruffled and smooth as scales. She did nothing to intervene, and so neither did I, as Paul grabbed at one of the ducklings. He had good intentions. He was a gentle enough kid. At the last minute, though, he pulled his hand back as if spooked, as if he felt something horrible beneath all that fluffy down, something brittle and hard and unexpected. Oh, he said. What? I asked, newly impatient with him. 
His squeamishness goaded me somehow, made me a little angry. I wanted him to take the duckling and do something heartless and boyish, so I'd have to remind him to be kind. I don't know. I wanted to be the one to stop him when he discovered the fragile contraption of bones beneath that halo of down. I wanted to intervene on behalf of animals. It irritated me that he was so careful and afraid. We stood and watched as a duckling waddled off to its mother and the troop reconvened in a huddle under a pine. For a strange instant, I found myself longing to lift a rock and throw it at them. I wanted to show Paul something, maybe make him scared of the right things. Or another time, an early evening, as Paul and I were cresting the last hill, as I was squinting into the darkening woods to make out the path, a couple of deer lifted their heads at once and differentiated themselves from the trees. We stared at them and they at us for a full 30 seconds without moving. They multiplied as we looked at them. There were three at first, then there were four, then there were five. They were the exact color of the bark and leaves, gray-brown, but the skin around their eyes was red. I felt the breeze on their backs lift the braid from my chest and set it down over my shoulder. They're going to get us, Paul whispered. He reached for my hand. They're a herd, I reminded him. They're afraid of us. Two more appeared. Paul shivered. It's okay, it's okay. They're prey, I soothed. The deer silvered under the wind. Their pink ears twitched. I knew they would take off in an instant. I could see their haunches tense. But even I had the irrational thought that they were about to run right for us. They seemed ready to bear down. Then off they went over the far ridge, white tails lifted, hopping with that mechanical grace animals have, grasshoppers and birds, as if nothing save death could interrupt the repetitive beat of their movements. Branches rattled old rain down on us. We were alone. So I'll stop there. And I'd love to open up to questions and have a conversation if you have any questions. Yeah. I, you know, I immediately, when you discussed your thematic material, I thought, I'd love to hear you talk about this notion of responsibility. Mm. But then you've written a whole novel. You know, so how do you get a novelist to discuss this stuff in a way? Mm. So I'm going to do it by way of an, um, analogy. As I came here, it's a kind of frigid, cold night out there. And I saw this young kid who obviously had nowhere to go tonight. Mm-hmm. And I felt this tug of empathy. Mm-hmm. I just literally down to my soul. I would really like to extend help to this young kid. Mm-hmm. But I don't trust the situation. So then I sort of mm-hmm. moved that out. And I thought, why don't I trust the situation? I live in a society where I don't even trust my mom and dad. There's mm-hmm. no social media. There's no extension of trust in, in the fabric of the society at all. Mm-hmm. So... Can I ask you, in that analogy, how do we ever assume responsibility for actions? How do we even decide that's an important question when you have um, corporations and agents doing everything to defer the question of responsibility out of the social sphere? Hmm. That's a great question and a really hard question. Uh, Did you all hear the question? Um, Essentially... um 
you're asking about how how do we talk about responsibility when when um, our social institutions uh, don't uh, don't support the idea of social responsibility. Is that how you put it? Um, you know, it's interesting what you said. Um, you sort of set the question up by talking about your own experience with a, seeing a, a boy on the street. I actually just today I saw this small boy, about a three-year-old, um, running around um, downtown LA, and um, he looked. He appeared to be totally on his own. And um, I, I, and several other people sort of stopped and kind of asked each other, you know, is that your child? Um, but nobody approached the boy at first. There was a lot of hesitation, and then eventually, after a few minutes, a mother seemed to appear. But there is that hesitation. I think you're right. And I think that's something at the core of this book. Um, there's this sort of abdication of responsibility, um, especially for children, um, uh, for both Linda, potentially, and, and also for Paul. Um, and, I mean, one way to answer that is... Um, I mean, this is a question that we could all talk about probably all night. It's a really good one. But I think in our society, so much of responsibility for children falls on families, immediate nuclear families, right? Um, and uh, and we're always, most of us are quite hesitant to intervene um, with children that are not our own. And, um, and I don't know what to do about that. That seems like um, a a kind of a social norm, but uh, but it's something I was thinking a lot about um, when we have children that desperately need to be taken care of and their families aren't doing it for whatever reason. Um, who then is responsible for them? Who who will take care of Paul? Will it be the babysitter who herself um, has so few resources and so little community? Um, it's it's not in this case. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's a really good question, and I think not, not one I can answer easily, but one that I was certainly thinking about, um, if not in precisely the terms that you asked. Um, you, you just extend my thought a little bit. Yeah. What if in a city like L.A., where even the people raising the kids are of a different social class, mm -hmm. social values, so mm -hmm. these kids emerge in a framework where often the people they're closest to have more of an empathy with each other and a social fabric mm -hmm. than their parents will it's right. very interesting. It's, it must have been really fertile for you. Yeah, no, I was, I was very, yeah, it's a very good question. It's a hard set of questions, I think. Oh, thank you. Thank you, I appreciate that. Great question. Um, others? Yeah. Um, when did you know the short story not a short story, and how did you realize it? And then could you talk a little bit about like, Venice relationship with nature? It seems to be such a mm -hmm. central role here, and sort of just like, unconsciously criticism, or, you know, something mm -hmm. that you're sort of working towards or thinking about realizes all of what It seems to be a little natch, actually. <laughs> That's speaking of nature. Um, um, yeah, the first question, to, so, so uh, you asked about how I knew in the story um, could make itself into a novel, potentially. Um, I don't think I, I knew that until I, you know, I wrote a lot of stories. I wrote stories for years, and they kept, I kept thinking maybe some, one of them would become something longer, and they never, they sort of collapsed back into stories. Um, I, I think the only difference between this, this story, um, and the others, is that there was something about the voice that 
was both familiar and different enough for me. Um, so I feel like I, I sometimes write stories that are really unusual voices and they kind of flame out over the course of writing them and I feel like I've done what I've wanted to do with them. Um, and then there are also voices that are more familiar and they're, they're good for what they're doing but potentially aren't interesting enough to me as a writer to stay with for a long project. And this one was just, it just kind of sat in between those two poles. Um, I, I knew there was more to think through and more to understand about this character. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I didn't always like her, but I, I was always interested in her. You know, remained that way for years, actually. And that, that was, that was important. It seems essential uh, to doing a long project. Um, your second question about nature. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if there was something intentional about the, the, the thinking through and writing about the natural world in this book, except for to say that it seemed always so closely connected to, to this character, to, to the narrator. Um, and she's, she's sort of a creature of the woods in her way, and, um, and it, you know, it, it shaped how she spoke and how she interacted with the world. Um, she's not a person who talks a lot. Um, she's not a person who, who interacts with the world you know, in language and conversations. Um, she interacts with the world through her dogs and through you know, paddling her canoe and being outside. And so um, it, was just, it was interesting to me and seemed valuable to me to think about um, how, to, how to explore how a character feels without actually talking in the language of feeling, but in the language of um, kind of the body, right? That's how Linda interacts with the world. Um, and, and the seasons and, um, and her beloved woods um, become, become kind of the, the way that I understood her as a person. Um, maybe one more thought on that is, I also did it, very much didn't want to romanticize the wilderness. Um, there's something um, compelling about the sort of churn of seasons in this book to me, but um, but there's also something that's um, that's sort of entrapping about that churn. Um, Linda feels stuck in her world as much as she feels um, like you know, like it, it gives something to her, and and also. It changes by the end. You know, it kind of becomes a suburb. Um, the land is sold off, and this is not a place that remains. You know, a wilderness as we know wilderness. Good question. Well, thank you. Others? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll just anyone else before we go back. Okay. Yeah. I love you have sort of an elegance and a removal from your language. I can think about lo- a lot about language. Being from California myself, there's a laziness, a syllabic laziness, the way that vowels modulate so that there's a sound that comes out of geographies. And I was reading this really elegant uh, passage from Charles Baxter where he talked about an overtone of music. Mm-hmm. It's not ac- exactly the people you meet, it's not the actions you meet. I was thinking in terms of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is this overtone that's glimpsed where the whole meaning and message of life reveals itself almost mm. in this mystical and when you mm. talk about the writing process I was getting that feeling from you and I was wondering if I threw this idea I don't even know how aware writers are of their own language but do you feel that formality and that kind of beautifulness like when mm. you said 
the girls' school by the sea or on the sea. There was something. There's there's a just a, a way of um, there's an elegance to your sentence structure. Oh, thank you. There's, there's kind of a European formality to it. Mm. I'm just wondering if that harkens to something from the way you grew up or your like. And and if you feel in working with these characters in the way that you're seeing them and manipulating, that you have anything akin to Charles Baxter's overtone message. Well, I'll say I love Charles Baxter's writing about writing. Um, he's really smart. He's really brilliant. Um, yeah, I do care a lot about rhythm, actually, in sentences. Um, I probably think through rhythm first before I think about character or plot or all the other pieces. Um, I think I, I think it's Virginia Woolf actually um, who, who talks. She has, was writing in a, a letter at some point, and she said she had this idea for a book, but hadn't yet caught the rhythm. Something to the effect of she hadn't yet caught the rhythm of the of the sentences, and so couldn't start. You know, couldn't start writing. And I always empathized with that idea. Um, and I don't know what that is. It's it is a bit mysterious to me where that comes from. Um, my parents, my family's here. We could ask them. I don't I don't know if it comes from from. Um, they're not they're, they're not Dutch. No. Um, um, but I do, yeah, I do have always cared about the music of language. Um, and sometimes I, when I'm writing, I, I even will write a sentence and not know what the words will be, but will hear a rhythm and will kind of wait for the words to fill in. Um, it has something to do with pacing, how fast to move and how slow to move and how a sentence can kind of control pacing. Um, and it also has something to do with um, rhyme, actually. I'm, I, th- I think if you probably look at some of these sentences, there's some internal rhyme that I just... I'm playing a little bit with with repetition of sound. And then, can you explain to me, this is like a quiz question. If you can answer this, I will like have everything in my head like I need. Um, how does your, your manipulation of character and plot relate to that aspect? That is a quiz question. That is hard. Um, I, maybe one way to answer that question is um, to think, I, I think in terms of uh, the sentence itself um, offering a rhythm and the plot also offering a kind of macro rhythm. So the micro and macro rhythms kind of having to work together simultaneously. Um, so so on a sentence level, there's this sort of speeding up and slowing down, the kind of controlled release of information, and then that happens on the level of plot as well. So so in terms of, um, so I th- also think in terms of when, when to reveal information, um, how slowly or how quickly to reveal information to the reader um, in terms of paragraphs, chapters, um, and that kind of thing. So it's sort of it's some combination of, of matching up the micro and the macro rhythms of the book, which is hard to do. Oh, I am, I, I'm a teacher, actually, yes. I'm at Cornell right now. Um, other, other questions? Wes, do you have a question? <laughs> okay. Well, thank you all so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Um. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.